Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. Then he uttered the words to me, what do you know about Sonoma? Little did I know that that question, those six words would forever change my life. Now, I don't know if you've had moments like that in your life where there's seemingly just a random comment or question that later on in reflection, you realize that was a inflection point. It was a pivotal moment that literally just changed the course of your life forever. And I, I pray that today as we gather uh, for the first time, for, as we do the weekly ministry, that this would be that moment for you. It certainly was for me when I, when I heard that question uh, for the first time two years ago. Um, but I want to, again, uh, just on behalf of everyone here on our leadership team, say welcome. Welcome to Sonoma Collective. We're so thrilled to be here um, by God's grace that he's allowed us to start meeting as a family. And uh, to see your beautiful faces here is just such a joy and a gift. Um, so this, this was not uh, anywhere on my radar, certainly uh, a little over two years ago. Um, and yet here we are. And so... Um, uh, real quick, why Sonoma Collective? Um, well, the word collective, uh, if we look it up, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, uh, it denotes a number of persons or things considered as one group uh, or a whole. It's also another definition is it's a group of entities that share or are motivated by at least one common issue or interest or work together to achieve a common objective. So that question is, well, Sonoma Collective, Sonoma makes sense, right? Well, this is where we are, but collective, what is that issue? What is that interest or objective that we have in common? Well, in a word, it's Jesus. That's what we have in common. That's what we'll always have in common. That's what God willing will always be at the center of what we do and all the things that we do here. Um, And so our mission is very simple. It's to practice the way of Jesus together in Sonoma. And the purpose of that is so that we can achieve our vision. And our vision is that it would be in Sonoma as it is in heaven. And so just real quick, uh, just to kind of break that down for us, uh, this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. Uh, this is something that uh, this language maybe is, is new to you, but it's something that's been common to the Christian tradition for, for a very long time. Uh, this idea of practicing the way. Often when the earliest Christians were, were talked about, they were referred to as people on the way. Let's remember that Jesus uh, was a Jew, he was a rabbi, and so when the first church started breaking out, it was within the Jewish tradition. So many saw it as this like sect within the the Jewish tradition. So they would say, oh, those are people that are on the way, just to differentiate them from the rest of the Jewish faith. And so Jesus made this claim in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Now, this is one of those um, really uh, comfortable phrases to share with those who uh, don't believe in Jesus. Uh, because it's one of those exclusive claims, right? He's, he's making it re- no bones about it. Like there's no other way uh, to get to eternity, to get to the Father, except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and maybe, you know, that's, that's kind of like sits a little difficult within our, our, our minds a bit because we live in such a pluralistic culture. We live in such a culture where to say this exclusively is the only thing is just not, uh, not looked upon uh, favorably, right? I mean, we're, we're so like trying to always appease so many different perspectives and views and Right. We have these phrases like, you know, your truth is your truth and my truth is mine and all this. And it's like to claim that, hey, this is the exclusive absolute truth is not really popular these days, to say the least. 
right? I mean, we're always sort of trying to be like PC, which I'm not even sure if we know what that means to be politically correct anymore, honestly. Um, but yet here we find ourselves with this claim by Jesus himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we think about what he said there. He says, I'm the way and the truth. And so when we say practicing the way, we're uh, subscribing to that way that Jesus was talking about. That if we want to get to the life that he promised, he says that he came to give life, that the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10, 10. But Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it abundantly, to give you the blessed life, the fulfilled life. And so we think about that phrase, that there's a way and a truth, then that then equals the life. So if we believe the truth, Jesus is truth, and then we actually do what he told us to do, that would be living the way, then we can achieve that life that we so desperately want. And so that's what it means to practice the way. And over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to take some time to sort of unpack that a little bit more and talk more about what that really means practically for us to understand that. But just high level today, uh, we're practicing the way of Jesus. We're trying to believe what he's revealed to us through his word, through the Bible, through scripture. But then not just have a bunch of thoughts about Jesus, but then actually live it out to, to do the things that he tells us to do, to live our life like Jesus lived his life. That's what it means to follow the way. And so we want to practice the way of Jesus, and we want to do that together, right? The middle part of that mission statement. Uh, there is no solo Christianity, at least not according to the scriptures, right? Jesus was not interested in just having this one-on-one -on -one relationship with you. He invites us constantly to be in each other's lives, right? It's just, it's just not congruent with scripture to say, it's just me and Jesus. We got our own thing going. I'm good with all this other stuff and activity with other people. Right? We know that to be true, one, because God himself is in relationship. He's been in relationship from the beginning. Father, Son, Spirit, three in one, one God, three persons within the same God. He's always been in relationship with himself, and he's made us in his image to be in relationship with him, but also to be in relationship with each other. And so there's so many commands within Scripture that are literally impossible to do unless we're in relationship. And there's many ways that Jesus talks about this relationship. He calls the church his body, right? Most often he refers to it as a family. And, and y'all know, because you all have families, that family is one of the greatest gifts that we could ever receive. But it's also one of the hardest. It's difficult at times because of the people in our families, starting with us, right? Like, like family can be really difficult. And, and just, just so we're not painting a, a, a rose-colored glasses image of what this is going to be like, you're going to have issues with people within this church family probably with me first, honestly, right? But that's just what it looks like to be in family. And so the question is, can we live out family according to the way that Jesus has defined it? Some of us, or all of us, we come into this situation where we have family of origin. And with that comes some really beautiful things, but also with some like some baggage and some challenging things. And so the invitation when we step into this family of Jesus is that we start to redefine what it means to be family, what it means to call each other brother and sister, what it means to be in life together and how do we honor each other? How do we disagree and yet still not cancel each other and have relationship as we navigate? And the beautiful thing is we do that, we start to have a depth of relationships that we wouldn't have had otherwise had we not gone through that conflict. And so if we're going to do this, we have to do it together. We, we can't hope to see heaven here in Sonoma if we're not willing to be in each other's lives. We're not willing to do the hard work to really be a family. It's such a compelling thing to show people a community that really truly loves each other, doesn't all get along, doesn't all agree on all things, and yet truly loves each other and is there for each other in the, in the best of times and the worst of times. There are so many people here in Sonoma that are desperate for a community like that. 
And that's our heart to, to create that, but it's going to require all of us and it's not going to be easy. So full disclaimer, don't say I didn't warn you. So practicing the way of Jesus together in Sonoma. That last part, again, I think is pretty clear and obvious. We are here in Sonoma, but we're not here by coincidence. I don't believe that. I think every one of us is here for a purpose and a plan that God has for our lives. Some of us have been here for multiple generations. We grew up here. I had conversations with several of you like, it's weird to be on this campus again. I used to go to this high school here, right? Uh, others of us have come recently within the last few years. And regardless of how you got here, th there is a God who has called you to him and has planted you here in this community for a purpose, for a reason. That with your talents, with your desires, your skills, the people you know, the network you have, your resources, that if you're willing to give that over to God, to surrender and partner with him, he will use those things to be a blessing to the people of Sonoma. That he can use those particular things, those nuances of your life to bless somebody that otherwise wouldn't receive that if you hadn't been in their life. And so as a, as a community, we don't just want to become like Jesus so that we're better. Like that we don't get angry as much or we're quicker to forgive or we're more of a loving person, which by the way are all wonderful things and should happen if we're actually following this Jesus. It's not just for our own benefit. We become more like Jesus for the sake of others. And so as we practice this way this and follow this Jesus as our leader, as our rabbi, and we do it together and we work through all the difficult moments and, and, and celebrate all the beautiful ones, we do all that so that we can turn and be a blessing to this community, to Sonoma. There are a lot of people that are broken, that are hurt, that are lost within our community. And God willing that if we surrender to him, he'll use us and he'll be graceful enough to allow us to be a part of this process where we can be a blessing to other people. So that's what our mission is, to practice the way of Jesus together in Sonoma. And all of that is so that we can see our vision come to reality, which is in Sonoma as it is in heaven. And that's not original to us here at Sonoma Collective. We're just co-opting Jesus's prayer that he taught us to pray. Right? When his followers were saying, hey, Jesus, we, we know how these religious leaders pray. How do you want us to pray? He said, pray like this. And you maybe heard this before. We referred to it as the Lord's Prayer. He said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallow or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or as we are describing it in Sonoma, as it is in heaven. And so that's our vision. That's our prayer that we would see heaven break out here in Sonoma. Heaven isn't just this ethereal place that we go to with wings on and there's like little people on harps. Like, like that's not the biblical definition of heaven. Heaven can meet earth right now. We can begin that eternal life and relationship with God right here and right now as practice for what it'll look like for eternity after we, we, we die and are resurrected. And so we want to see that happen. So the question, of course, we want to ask is, well, then what does heaven look like? How do we know? if it's actually happening. And again, we just simply need to go to our Lord, to Jesus as example and say, well, what did he do? What, what did it look like when he was walking the earth uh, 2000 years ago? And we see things like he was declaring the good news. He was declaring the gospel. He said, look, the kingdom of heaven is here right now. I'm bringing it to fruition. And then he started doing stuff. He started uh, praying and blessing people. He started casting out demons. He started helping the, the blind to see and the, the lame to walk and the mute to speak. He was casting out demons from people. He was raising people from the dead. There was people that were coming together in a relationship that otherwise weren't. That, that's what it looks like. And we might think to yourself, wait a minute, are we going to see that stuff happening? Well, yeah, I hope so. I think if we're doing this right, by God's grace, we should start to see that stuff happening because Jesus himself said, you will do the things that you've seen me do and more. Now, we don't know exactly, and biblical scholars argue, does that mean like more fantastic, like more impressive things or just more in quantity of the same things that he did. We don't really know, but what we do know is he said more. And last time I checked, more just means more. So we should see it happening. 
And so as we follow after this rabbi, if we follow after this Jesus and we read the Bible and we start to say, okay, I need to change some things based on this. And we get in relationship with each other and say, hey, I think I need some work and help here. So would you help me with that? And I can help you with some things and we'll do this together. And all of a sudden we start to do that as a community and that starts to spread and we see more people coming. We should start to see some of those things happening. And we believe that. And, and that's what we're going after. We want to see that. We want to see heaven break out here on earth in Sonoma. So that's what we're going after. So um, I'm not sure if, if you came for that purpose, right? If you're like, I'm all for that. Or you're like, I had no idea that's what this is about. Well, now you know. And uh, we, you are welcome here. Uh, as you're figuring it out, we would love for you to be here. And please know that those doors are open to every single person that calls Sonoma home. There will never be a situation where we said, sorry, you can't come in here. We want you to come because that's exactly what Jesus did. He went to those who are often cast aside, who are the, on the outcasts of society, the marginalized, those who no one wanted to spend time with. We want to see those people come. We want to see those people come and experience the love that God has for them. And if we are willing to surrender our own agendas, we'll see that happening here in our, in our midst. So that's what we're going after. Um, now to tell the full story of Sonoma Collective, we have to go back a little bit, uh, 44 years to be exact. Um, that's when it began for me at least. Um, now we're all part of a bigger story. That's God's story. From the beginning of time, he created all things. And, uh, I came into the story 44 years ago. Um, I was born to um, a, a couple, uh, my mom and dad, and uh, before I was a year old, they had some challenges and they uh, got a divorce. And so I was raised by my mom, a single parent, and she um, was raised Catholic. And so she wanted to pass that on to me in tradition. So as a good, dutiful son, I went through all of the, the rhythms of the Catholic upbringing. And I went to, to, I went to church, I went to CCD class because mom couldn't afford to get me into Catholic school. And so I did those things. and. I went all the way through and got confirmed. And then when I was, I don't know, about 15, 16, I was at a point where physically she couldn't drag me to church anymore. And so that's when I decided that I didn't think this was for me. And I, I based that mainly on because um, I, I saw all, I, I kind of was paying attention to what the priests were saying. And I saw a lot of like religious activity. I saw a lot of religiosity, but what I didn't see was transformed lives. Right. I saw my family have the same dysfunction, you know, each week they would have fights and, they would like cut each other off, not talk to each other for a long time. And they would have some, maybe drink a little too much and be, and there's definitely an anger theme in my family. And then we would go to church and say, you know, God, please forgive me and um, bless me because I'm going to probably go do the same thing this week. Right. There just wasn't this like change that was happening. And so it just didn't really ring true to me that this is something that wasn't true or hollow about that. Um, and so I decided at that point to do what most humans do at some point in their life. And that is to choose to live the, the, in the language of today, I chose to live my best life. Like I just wanted to live a life that was as full of, of joy and pleasure and indulgences and as free from pain as possible. I thought if I do that, then that's where true happiness will be. And so I'm just going to do all the things that make me happy because that's, I think, the, the purpose of life. And I kind of would sum that up uh, with a quote. I couldn't find anybody to attribute it to. And it is that I, I decided to live the life that I thought I deserved. That if I just did all the things that I thought I deserved, then that would probably get me to the place that I most wanted to be. And so for me, as a teenager, it was to um, have fun with my friends, which led to partying. And that partying led to drinking, which then led to alcohol, which then led to sleeping around, and then was travel. And then in order to, to su su support all those indulgences, I need to go make some money. And so I started you know, trying to make as much money as possible so I could fuel all those desires in my heart and keep doing those and, and doing those more frequently. And I, and you know, honestly, I had a good like 10 year run. Like I, I lived that life and I did it pretty well. And, you know, things just sort of worked out for me uh, during that season of my life. 
Um, but I look back on it now and, you know, you might call it luck, but I certainly call it um, God's favor at this point in my life as I look back. Just his grace and protection over me that I didn't come out of that season of my life diseased with an unwanted pregnancy. I didn't have any jail time, all, well, although I did do a six-hour a six like juvie stint at one point, which I can tell you about that later. Um, I, I wasn't dead, right? And there was certainly at least half a dozen moments with drunk driving and different things that I was part of that could have easily been the end of my story. But I just see God's hand of grace and favor for, for you know, reasons I'll, I'll never fully know. He decided, no, no, your, your story's not done yet. I've got more for you uh, than, than all these things that you're pursuing. And now God is gracious and he is quick to forgive, but we live in a world where there's still consequences. There are still consequences for the choice we make and the choices that we make. And so um, this decade of sort of living the life that I deserved uh, it resulted in, in this, that I was a self-obsessed, prideful, judgmental workaholic with a failed engagement, which wasn't to Carissa. Uh, I was addicted to pornography, uh, had very little money in the bank despite having a six-figure income at this point. Uh, and I was desperately lonely because all my friends had left me because, quite frankly, who would want to be friends with that guy? I just wasn't, I wasn't anybody that, you know, I wasn't someone that people wanted to be around because I was so focused on me and, and living this life that I thought I deserved. And the, the tragic irony of this decade of living was that my guiding principle, this live the life that I thought I deserved, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. I was in fact living the life that I deserved. I deserved to be alone. I deserved to have my fiance call, call it off because all the, the junk and issues I brought into relationship. I deserved not to have money because of what I chose to spend it on. I, I got what I was seeking. Now, I just didn't realize it at the time that that's where would, I would end up. You see, I thought that if I went after the desires of my heart, that if I pursued all this fun and pleasure and indulgences and, you know, was a nice guy, quote unquote, to most people, then I should have a good life. But I realized that all those things that I thought were going to fulfill me, those promises in the beginning and, 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 you know, the party lifestyle, it's like, look, you're going to have all the things you want. You know, if you travel, you see all these wonderful experiences, you know, have all these wonderful experiences. This is what it'll be. And all those things promise a lot in the beginning. And in the end, they don't deliver on any of them. They say, look, if you, if we'll promise all this, it doesn't cost you anything. And then that gets reversed in the end. And they don't give you anything and they demand everything from you. The Bible has a word for those things. It calls them idols. It's just anything in your life that you put as the primary thing above God or in God's place. They'll, they'll promise the world and not ask for much in the beginning, but as time goes on, they start asking for more and more, and in the end, they never deliver on their promises. And so I find myself, uh, you know, pretty desperate and without hope, and uh, thankfully never had thoughts of ending it myself, but I just thought, man, I got to start over again. What is this going to look like? And I was so thankful as I look back that that wasn't the end of my story. Um, and, you know, I, I realized, I started to realize actually for the first time, even though I had been experiencing it my whole life, that, that God loved me and he was pursuing me. I, I see that, that he was doing that all my life now, but it was the first time where the, my eyes opened up to that reality, right? As the Bible says, it, there was, the, the veil was, was fell and the, the, you know, the, 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 my eyes were opened. And I started to realize what, uh, what David, the King David wrote about in Psalm 23 at the end. He talks about God being a shepherd. He says this, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. That even though I was rejecting God, I was saying, look, I don't want anything to do with you because if you'll just get in the way of all this fun I want to have. That he was pursuing me, that the goodness of God, the faithfulness and the love of God was pursuing me all the days of my life. And I started to see that in this season. And so that, that leads us to our, our teaching text today. Uh, Luke 15, if you have your Bibles, you can, uh, we're in the same spot, Luke 15. 
Um, I'm going to read it to us again and then just talk a little bit about what, uh, what, what Jesus is trying to get to in, the, in these two stories. It says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the, the scribes and Pharisees, those were the religious leaders, the Bible scholars of their days, basically pastors, right? It's, it's interesting being a pastor, reading about Pharisees all the time. It's sort of like this like weird, like, oh man, I hope I don't fall into that same trap. And so they're seeing all these people come to Jesus and they're saying, look at the tax collectors, the sinners, like those are the people we reject. Those people shouldn't be in the temple to worship God. They, have, they, have, they deserve the life that they have. And he, Jesus, they're talking about, he welcomes them in. Matter of fact, he dines with them. Now you might think like tax collector, that's weird. Why tax collectors? Well, you got to remember that this is when um, Israel, the nation, was subjected to Rome. Rome, the empire, was the, was, controlled the world. They, they ruled the world at this point and had all these different territories that they were in charge of. And so they set councils and prefects to be in charge of Israel. And they brought with them the, the, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, the army with them. And so they were under Roman rule and authority. They were, they were not a free people. They were an oppressed people. And so Rome, in order to fund this empire, they would tax the people. And so they would put these taxes on the, the countries that they own and they controlled. Now, we're not talking like the 8 or 9.75% tax that we have that we complain about now. This was like 50, 60, sometimes even 90% taxation on the things that they did. And in order to collect the money, they thought the best way to do it was let's just employ locals to be the ones that collect this money from everybody. So you would have Israelites who would say, yeah, I'll do that. I'll be a tax collector. I'll collect from my fellow countrymen and women the money that Rome wants to fuel their empire and to, to continue to oppress us. And so tax collectors, you can imagine, were not very popular people. And, and, and to make it worse, often they were not honest people. They were also corrupt. So they would add on additional fees and additional taxes to fund their own desires. And so they would have uh, their own. And, and the thing was, no one could tell them no, because there'd be a Roman soldier standing right there on taxation day, right? Those are like the Navy SEALs of their day. And so it's like this tax collector says, oh yeah, you owe 70. Actually, it's going to be 75% because I need to like have a nicer home, right? So these tax collectors were literally the most hated people in the culture at the time. And so here Jesus is saying, hey, I want to have a meal with you. Like I want to sit down and dine with you. And to, to dine uh, with somebody in this culture, this is different than our culture. It's a shame honor culture. It literally is to fully embrace and accept somebody. To open up your home and to invite someone to come in and, and eat with you would have been to say that I fully accept you. I fully embrace you and, and who you are. And so this was nothing short of scandalous. And so that we, we understand a little bit more now why these Pharisees are saying, why is he doing this? And so he tells a parable. He says, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he's found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And he tells a second story at the same time. He says, what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. God's uh, getting to the same point. Jesus is saying, look, God is about going after those that are lost. He's about going after those that are on the margin, those that are desperate, that know they need a savior. He's, con he's, con he's committed to that. He will go to all kinds of lengths. I mean, think about the, the sheep, right? He's saying, look, I'll leave 99 in the wilderness, in a field, 
to go after one who is lost. That's how committed he is to each one of us. And then the, the third parable we're not going to have time for today is the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And it's a pretty famous parable. It tells of a son who spends all of his inheritance and goes off and lives basically like I lived for a while. And then he comes back groveling to his father and says, I'm so sorry, I've lost all my money. He's in a desperate place. And the father welcomes him with open arms, kills the best cow he has to have a feast. All three of these parables, they end with a feast. They end with a celebration, a rejoicing. God is thrilled when somebody says yes to his invitation to come back. When, God's, when, when someone says, yes, to Jesus, I want to accept you as Lord and Savior. There is a, a heavenly party that happens apparently when this goes on. And so Jesus is driving home this point. Three different stories he tells, all with different characters and context, but with the same point. That he is committed to pursuing you no matter where you find yourself. And perhaps today you're thinking, man, I, I don't know that God could love me based on all the things that are going on in my life. I got some things sure that are good, but there's some really dark and ugly things. And uh, friends, I got news for you. He already knows those, those dark and ugly things, and he's said yes. Jesus on the cross said, I, I, I will pay for all that for you. I will wipe all that away if you willingly surrender and say yes to me. That there isn't anything you can do that will drive you away and make you unlovable in God's eyes. He is so committed to loving us and to pursuing us. And so this God of the Bible, this Christian God, this Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is full of abounding love and he is committed to seek and save the lost. So I guess the question today is, do you identify with the one or with the 99? Like, as you think about your life, do you, do you think like, I, I don't know if I'm that lost. I think maybe I'm more like one of the 99. Like I'm, I'm not like number one of 99, but maybe like 57. You know, I got some stuff going on in my life, but like for the most part, I'm pretty good. Like I pay my taxes, I'm nice to my neighbors, you know, but I don't know, I'm not, I'm not that bad. Or, or I don't know, maybe, maybe you do identify with the one, but I, guess, I think a question we have to ask is, there's an interesting statement. And he says in verse seven, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. It's interesting. Because earlier in scripture, uh, Psalm 14, it says this, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there's one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All like have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's interesting. According to that Psalm, none of us, no one in the human race has done good. Now we fast forward a little bit later in scripture and there's this letter called Romans and this is written by a guy named Paul as an apostle. He was an incredible theologian and church planter. He planted churches all over the known world and he would write letters to these churches after he planted the churches to just check in on them and encourage them and remind them of things that he taught them when he was there. And Romans, many would argue, is like his like uh, magnum opus. It's like his like primary, uh, it's his best text. Like this is the Christian faith, right? Romans. It's a really uh, incredible uh, letter. It's super challenging and very deep and in that, he quotes that very same psalm, what I just read to you. He quotes that psalm and says the very things I said. And then a little bit later on in, the, in that same chapter, he reminds us, he says, listen, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short. There isn't one of us who have been able to perfectly live out the standards of God, to abide by his law, to live a perfect life, to never, uh, just the basics. We can look at the top 10, right? To, to, to not covet, like not desire things that aren't ours, to, to bear false testimony, to not do that, right? To never lie, to, uh, to, to be uh, kind, not to think deathly thoughts towards other people, right? It, you know, it says not to kill. 
And then Jesus later says, yeah, but if you're angry at someone, it's kind of like you killed them in your heart. So it's like you're, 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 you, didn't, you didn't get off on a free pass on that one. Right? That's just like a few of the like 10 commandments. Like none of us can sit here today and say like, yep, I'm good. I've nailed all those so far, so good. Right? If you keep talking much longer, I might break one of them, but so far we're good. Right? Paul says, he reminds us what we already know, which is look, none of us have been able to do it. None of us have been able to live a life that where the things that we want to do, we actually do. Like that's just an easy check, right? There are times where I'm like, okay, don't yell at the kids. Don't yell at the kids. They're kids. Don't yell at the kids. Stop yelling, right? Like then it's like, oh, Jason, good job. Like you blew it, right? And that was just this morning, by the way. You know, it's like, there's so many things. Like all of us, we have things like be kind, think nice thoughts. Like don't, don't give that person the middle finger that just cut you off. Don't do it. Like we all, like there's things in our mind, like a standard we have for ourselves that we don't even have to compare to God. Like just our own standards that we can't even live up to, that we fall short of daily. And Paul's like, yeah, that's because we all have this thing called sin. We all have this fallen aspect to our nature that means that we're never going to be able to live up to our standard, let alone God's perfect and holy standard. We've all fallen short. And so back to the question, or sorry, there's another uh, quote. I love this quote. This is from um, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, um, he says, any man who thinks he deserves heaven is not a Christian. But any, to any man who knows he deserves hell, there is hope. And he's just summar- summarizing what we just read in Psalm 14 and from Paul out of Romans chapter 3. He's saying, look, if you think you've got it all together, I, yeah, you're, you're in for it. Like it's just not going to go well for you. But if you know you've got some issues, if you know like you need some help, like there's a lot of hope. You got all the hope in the world. Jesus can work with that. Like he can do a lot with just a little bit of like, I think I need some help, Jesus. Could you, could you? Could you spare a brother like a few minutes here to help me out? Jesus can work with that. And so back to my question, it was sort of a trick question, right? Do you identify with the one of the 99? And Jesus is kind of the humor that he, he, and Jesus is like really funny, by the way. I don't know if you guys knew this, but like when you read, like he's, he's pretty funny. He's like, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't repent and don't need it. And it's like, but, he, but then it's like, well, Jesus, that, there is no 99. Like every single one of us needs repentance. There's people that believe they don't need repentance, but the reality is we all are on equal footing here. None of us have this all figured out. There isn't like a, a, a different standard of holiness within the Christian faith. Like we're all desperate. We all need Jesus just as much as the next person. And he's saying that's all of us. We're all the one. We're all the one sheep. We're all the one lost coin. We're all the prodigal sons who have rejected God at some point or another in our life. And even when we start to, to follow Jesus, like we still mess it up. We still need that grace and that forgiveness. He's saying there is so much joy in heaven when we say yes to Jesus in that moment. And say, Lord, I, I just, I need your help right now in my parenting. I'm struggling, Lord. I, I need help in this financial decision at work. Like, help me do the right thing here, even though it might cost me, Lord. Or like, I really want to love that person that makes my life a living hell, but I can't do it on my own. God, would you please give me the strength to love my enemies as you've asked me to? Like, that's the, that's the one. That's the, the one that he's going after. And when we identify and we say yes, that's when God can start to move. That's when he can start to work. And so we find ourselves on that place. And so I'm grateful that by God's grace that he brought me to that place of brokenness and humility. And I was able to recognize that I was in fact lost, that I I desperately needed some help. And he used that failed engagement to draw me closer. And I was desperate, really desperate at that point um, because it was really the first point in my life where I couldn't just do some things and make my life better. Like I was able to kind of fix things for the most part. And then I got to this point where it's like, I can't fix this anymore. I had tried for a long time to kick the pornography habit and fix the relationship. And I just failed miserably time and time again. And so I said, Lord, I just, I'm going to do it your way. If, if you are real, like, let's do this. Let's give this a shot and see what happens here. 
And so we started, and I started going to church and I started listening to the, the teaching and preaching. I was like, okay, this is kind of making some sense here. Like, I think this could help me. And I decided to get a Bible and I started reading the Bible and was like, man, I, I didn't read this thing when I was a Catholic. There's some good stuff in here. Like I should read this more. And this Jesus is like amazing. He's like the most compelling person I've ever heard about or seen before. Like, I, I do want to be like this guy. And then I started going to a Bible study and I started serving on Sundays at the church. And then there was this like really crazy, like time in my life. Some of you know the story of where I call it my season of singleness. And it was my first like supernatural experience with God. And through a long series of events, I'll keep it short. I basically prayed this prayer. I said, Lord, would you take away my sexual desire? Because it's gotten me nothing but trouble. And I believe that your, uh, your way of doing uh, sexual relationships and, and marriage is the right way. Like one man, one woman. And I, there's no place for sex outside of that. So I'm not married right now. So could you just take away my sexual desire? Because I don't think it's going to help me right now. And then I threw like a PS on at the end. Like, please give it back at some point, please. And he did both. He took it away. And for a year and a half, I had no sexual temptation or thoughts. And it was the most out-of-body sort of surreal, supernatural experience that I had, that God just did that. And he, I, I needed that. He needed to really get my focus on some things and like rewire some neural pathways and to redefine some things, take away some past experiences and images and, and memories. And say, this is how you need to start operating. This is what it looks like for a man to honor a woman and how you can go about these things. And so he did a supernatural work. And a year and a half later, after that season, which was incredible, I saw Carissa for the first time and thought, man, she is gorgeous. She is beautiful. Did I just sin? Like, I haven't had a thought like that a year and a half. So are we good, Lord? Did I just do something wrong? And um, I got my answer pretty, you know, soon after. And so uh, we got married and, and I was in a Bible study and the leader left for a few weeks and said, why don't you take over and lead this study? So I did. And uh, I was driving home from that and I heard the Lord clearly speak to me, not audibly, but just really clearly in my mind. I want you to do this full time, he said. And I thought, okay, like, can you make a living doing Bible studies? Like, is there something I'm not aware of? Like, whatever you want, Lord, yeah. And what I realized now is that he was, he was saying, no, no, I want you to move into full-time ministry. I want you to stop doing this uh, job you have, like transition out of that and go into full-time ministry. I'm gonna, I, got, I got plans for you. I said, okay, like, let me, I started seminary. I was getting my master's degree. I was still working. And then two months into that, he said, hey, I want you to apply for this job at the church you're at. I said, okay, like, let's go for it. And they, they said yes and hired me with no like previous ministry experience. And Two years later, less than that, I was married, newly married, and I was working at the church and um, my pastoral license got approved. And like within two weeks at most, uh, the leadership came to me and said, hey, we want you to go be the campus pastor and lead one of our three campuses. And I thought, you guys are not good leaders. Like you have like, who, why would you tell me to do that? I have no experience. I just became a pastor. Like, are you crazy? And so I did that. And um, I did that in 2014. And for almost eight years, I was leading a campus of about 12, 1300 people. Uh, and just was growing like crazy and just continuing to try to do the things that God asked me to do. I wasn't born with the Bible in my hand, but I just kept saying yes to God. And he just kept opening up doors and saying, okay, this is what you're going to do next. And I, I do have to say, just caveat, I'm not saying that if you say yes to Jesus, you're going to become a pastor. Because some of you might be like, I don't ever want to do that Jesus thing, if that's what that means. But maybe, I don't know. Like, that's his plan. Like, you guys will work that out. But that's what it was. That was my story. That's what happened. And so uh, four years into that stint, um, Chris and I were having a conversation. We had Parker, our oldest, and I think Parker had, or Brooklyn had just been born, our second. And we asked the question to each other. We said, okay, if our girls go through this church experience, if they go through this church industrial complex, as it seemed like at the time, they go through kids ministry, they get into youth ministry, they attend Sundays, I'm the pastor of the church and they're doing all the things. Will they be 
faithful followers of Jesus when they're 18 and kind of leaving the house? Like, will they be resilient disciples of Jesus that hear God's voice, obey him, and are faithful to him? Because at the end of the day, like, that was, like, for us, the most important thing. Like, it doesn't matter what they do. Like, that's it. Like, that's our primary goal as parents. Our kids are our first disciples. Like, we want to make sure that, that we pass on. If we pass on anything, that's what we give them. And it was a really sobering conversation because we looked at each other and thought, I don't know. Maybe. Like, they might, but maybe in spite of, not necessarily because of. And it was like, remember, I'm like the pastor of this local church. Like, what does that say about like my leadership? You know, like, but there was things I could control and not control about that certain that that ministry. And so we just said, okay, look, well, look, if that's our primary job is to raise these girls to to love Jesus, we didn't have Cam yet. He wasn't really a thought, but then we have to start changing some things because it's up to us, not up to the church to raise these kids. We'll partner with the church, but it's our responsibility. And so we said, okay, let's start doing some things differently. And um, by God's grace, I, I was reading, happened to be reading the Ten Commandments and I came across number four and it said uh, to practice the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath. Like six days you shall work and the seventh is mine, says God. Like it's mine and I want you to honor me, which means you're going to stop all that other stuff you do the other six days and you're going to rest and you're going to worship me and you're going to delight in me and my creation. And I thought, huh, it's still one of the top 10 <laughs> and I'm a pastor and I don't Sabbath. Like I, I work just as hard seven days a week as in this ministry, like what example am I setting, not only for the church, but for what about our girls? And, and look, the, the, the pace of culture is not gonna slow down anytime soon. With technology and AI and all the things coming, like it's just gonna get faster. It's up to us to, to resist that and to be counterculture and say, no, no, we should go at a different pace than what the world says we should go at. And so we said, okay, let's start, let's start taking Sabbath. Like let's start practicing this thing called Sabbath. And I just wanna tell you, we were horrible at it for a long time. Like it was rough. Like there was like many Sabbaths where I would come out of that 24 hour period more angry and anxious than when I started. And we had like really young kids. Like how do you rest with like babies that need changed every couple hours? And I don't know that I've all figured it out. So we're, we're still working it out. But here we are now six years later, post this, this experiment of practicing the Sabbath and doing what God tells us to do. And I got to tell you, it is my favorite day of the week. It is a day I look forward to and wake up and like, oh, it's, it's, it's Sabbath. Like, I don't have to think about anything. And, you know, and there was a lot of thought that went into today, a lot of work, a lot of time and effort by lots of people. But I, I tell you, our Sabbath right now is Friday. We start on Thursday night. We end on Friday night just because that's kind of our rhythm. And I tell you, when that started, I was like, I'm not going to think about the church. Like, it's okay because I, I'm going to rest and I'm going to trust that God is in charge. It's not up to me. At the end of the day, if he wants us to go well, it will. And I'll do my part, but I'm going to just trust him. And I'm going to enjoy him. And it was great. Like we went out and like had way too much sugar for the kids. It was like awesome. And like walked around the plaza and saw a bunch of people we knew and just thought how much we love Sonoma and the small town that we get to live in. And Sabbath is this day that like, again, I want my kids to like, and we kind of like trick them a little bit because we like make them pancakes or French toast every Sabbath morning. So they're always like, yeah, it's Sabbath. You know, like it's not like Pavlov's dog. I want them to like, when they hear the word Sabbath, they start salivating because they think of like pancakes or something, you know? So we want them to look at that day and be like, yes, this is like the best day because mom and dad are present. They're not thinking about work or other stuff and they're with us and we get to go explore and do fun stuff, things we wouldn't do on any other day of the week. And it's just one of many things that six years ago, God said, I hey, want you to start doing this. And I started doing that. And then things were going great for the first couple of years, although we were struggling with figuring out Sabbath, we were getting better at it. And then all of a sudden, um, COVID-19 happened. <laughs> this small little thing. Um, and, you know, crisis is often a catalyst and an accelerator. 
it'll accelerate stuff that's already happening. And one of the accelerations that happened was there was a lot of people that were not being part of the church anymore, didn't feel like a need for it or want to be part of it. So they like left the church experience. And when COVID-19 happened, there was a mass exodus of people leaving church, right? There was just, it accelerated what was already happening. And I don't have to tell you, you guys lived through it. Like, you know what it did in your life and your family's life. But for us, for Chris and I, it was like, it just confirmed, like it was like a doubling down on, yeah, we're, we're on the right path here. This idea of taking a, a slowed down approach to spirituality of, of practicing the Sabbath and going at a different pace, like we're on the right track here. Like there's something really sweet about this. I think this is about, is kind of the way that Jesus wants us to do this. What it also meant was that I was becoming uh, in more and more friction with the ministry that I was a part of because it was a very fast paced ministry. There was a lot of activity, did a lot of amazing things, a lot of service to the community, a lot of outreach, beautiful things that we want to bring into uh, Sonoma Collective at a healthy rhythm. But it also meant as I was slowing down and coaching my team to slow down and take Sabbath, there was starting to be some friction and conflict. And it became pretty clear that I, my time as campus pastor was coming to an end. And I wanted to leave honorably and, and transition well and not become a distraction. And so um, at the uh, end of 2021, August of 2021, I was ending a nine month transition out of my role as campus pastor. I was raising up the associate pastor to take over. I was preparing the congregation. I just wanted it to be really healthy, not weird in any way. Like I'm leaving for good reasons and really excited for Mario to take over and all these kind of things. And my last week on the job, I had this conversation and I'm gonna I'll read to you here my, my journal entry. Um, I'm not a journaler. Um, I'm one of those journalers who's like, every time I think about it and look back, I'm like, man, that was really good. I'm really glad I did that. I should do it more. Anybody like that with journaling? Like, just not my thing. But I'm really thankful that I wrote this down. So let me just read this a uh, couple quick things for you here. Then he uttered the words, what do you know about Sonoma? I thought wine country. It's next to Napa, Northern California. Uh, it was in San Diego, by the way, at that time. What I wasn't thinking was our new home. God's next assignment for us, answered prayers, kingdom expansion. Little did I know in that moment that this conversation would forever change the trajectory and course of my life, my family's future, and future generations to come. In a few short months, three generations of our family would pack up everything and plant ourselves in God's church in Sonoma, California. And this is dated 10-27-21, literally two years and two days ago from today. And um, I would love to tell you that I'm that good that I planned today's launch on this day. I, I'm not. I'm not that good. Uh, we didn't know exactly when we were going to start weekly services. But as I was thinking and praying about what I wanted to share today, and there's lots of things I'd love to say, uh, I, I, God took me to that journal entry and I looked and I was like, wow, look at that date. Look at that. Two years ago, I was, pack I was thinking to myself, we're about to leave San Diego and go on this wild, crazy adventure uh, to go to a place that we've never been before and to get to know the people and to usher in God's kingdom and start a community and let's just see what God wants to do. And so the question again is, what do you know about Sonoma? Well, for me, I could say in the last couple of years, I've learned a few things. I've, I've learned to love this place. There is a slower pace of life here that I just, am, it just, it just gives me life and I love it. I love the fact that we have chickens now and, and my kids get to grow up knowing chickens and all the, you know, and we lost three out of 12. So that's been fun, you know, like just learn all that stuff. Um, I've come to learn and love the people of Sonoma, especially those in this room. Some of you I know well and would consider family. Um, we've got to walk through some really difficult things in two short years, some really painful things, loss of, loss of family unexpectedly and the death of, it just, it's been, it's been hard. And, and 
you know, and just even leaving, like Chris has never been anywhere but San Diego before. So she, she, she commented and we drove up, like, I feel like an adult now. I'm finally leaving my hometown. And just the loss of some incredible community there. But, but man, just to be received with open arms and to meet some, some folks that love Jesus here that have been also drawn here by God that just inexplicably said, I, I don't know why I'm going to Sonoma, but I just feel like God wants me to be there. He's doing something and I want to be a part of it. And to meet you and to get to know you and to say, hey, let's do this together. I don't know what it's going to look like. I've never planted a church before, but let's figure it out together. And to just have the opportunity to try and create something a little bit different, uh, just to have a little bit different. We were intentional to not rush into this day. I mean, here we are two years after the fact it's taken us to do that. And some didn't appreciate that or like that. And yet it's just the pace we felt God wanted us to go at. And so this is where we're at today. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with joy and gratitude and it's so excited for what uh, is to come. I don't know what God has in store for us, but I'm really stoked to find out and to figure it out with you. And so I want to just end and leave you with just a, a simple prayer. It's not mine. I'm, I'm borrowing it from somebody else. Uh, again, I'm going to go to uh, this guy named Paul. And uh, he wrote a, a smaller letter to a church in this place called Philippi. It's called Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1. And he's just writing to him and encouraging him and saying, hey, man, you guys are doing amazing. I'm so proud of you. I hear all the good things you're doing. I just want to encourage you. And uh, he just has this prayer for, for them. And I was just thinking, man, this is the prayer that I have for us. It's the same prayer. I guess it's the prayer that, that we would do these things. And, and it's, it goes like this. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And the, the translation there is a, a CSB, or the Christian Standard Bible. But I want to read to you one more time that same passage from a different translation. Uh, this is actually the NCV. It's actually written for kids. Don't be offended. Um, but I just love the language. It's the simplicity of it. I think sometimes we could probably use a little more simplicity in our language to each other. But it says this. This is my prayer for you. That your love will grow more and more. That you will have knowledge and understanding with your love that you will see the difference between good and bad and will choose the good, that you will be pure and without wrong for the coming of Christ, that you will be filled with the good things produced in your life by Christ to bring glory and praise to God. And whatever God decides to do with this ministry and your involvement in it, I just pray that that would be the case, that all the activity, the things we do, the, the conversations we have, the relationships we build, the struggles we go through, that it would just produce good things because of Jesus and his goodness. Not because of us. We're not that great. At least I'm not. Because of his goodness and his faithfulness that we would produce good things and that he, he would get the glory for that, that he would get the praise. 